What is freedom? Gee, I'm free. Free to do whatever I want. Um, nobody can rule over me. I'm free. Isn't that anarchy? I don't, I don't think scripture is, is encouraging anarchy. You were called to freedom. There is a freedom within the constraints of Christ. There is a freedom that nobody understands until they are constrained by his grace. Um, we were talking in Sunday school about you really don't understand what it means to live until you come to the cross and die. It is at that point when you have died to yourself and given up all things that Christ then empowers you to live in a fashion that you are able to in the freedom that he gives. It's kind of, sounds like a dichotomy. You can't be free until you're constrained. You know, my favorite illustration about that, a train is not free to be a train until when? It's on the tracks. If it gets off the tracks, what is it? A a wreck, okay, a piece of junk. But when it's on the tracks, it's free to be everything that it was created to be. When you are within the will of Christ, you are free to be all that he has created you to be. So let's pray. free indeed once we are a bondservant to Christ. Once we have said that our desires are not important, our will is not our focus, but it is the will of our Savior and our Lord. It is when we live in submission to our Lord that we can really find the freedom that he offers. The freedom not to live with license and do whatever we want, but the freedom to live in the way that you have empowered us to do. The freedom to live and to walk the path where your word lights our path and it is always before us. The freedom to experience and face and overcome all the things that are there before us. It is this freedom to find a joy that we cannot find when we are enslaved by the bonds of of this world. Enslaved by the bonds of sin. We think there is such freedom in license. Freedom to sin and do what we want. But we really find that those are chains that we cannot break ourselves. It is not until you have come into our lives that we have repented of our sin, placed ourselves before you and and understood that forgiveness and, and received you as our Lord and Savior and bound ourselves to you in all that we are that we are really free, free to live as you call us to free to love in a way that is unselfish, free to demonstrate the things of Christ and free to experience the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we come today to this place of worship and we've come from a variety of places this week. Some have experienced great sorrow perhaps, some great joy, some have struggled desperately this week and others have found just your grace and mercy in abundance. So however we have arrived here today, Lord, We come to you, and we seek your will today for our lives. We pray that 
our attitudes, the lifting of our voices in song, our prayers would be filled with the desires of our heart, which would be for you. The desires to seek the things of Christ. The desires to live them out within our families and our places of work and all that we come in contact with. Lord, each of us has these things before us. I pray that you would come and give each one wisdom, give each one mercy and insight that they may live the things of Christ to the fullest and know the freedom that comes when we are slaves to Christ. Lord, we come because he has done the work. We come because you have drawn us and our salvation is not based upon our own works or upon our own efforts, but upon the work and person of Christ alone. So we pray together the prayer that he taught us as we say, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. It is our privilege to come before the Lord and to worship and to sing and to know his grace and mercy. So I invite the ushers to come at this time. We might continue to worship as we give of what the Lord has blessed us with.
Lord, in your mercy and your grace, you have brought us here today, that we might hear the things of Christ, hear your word, feel your presence in our lives, and go and then live in accordance with it. Lord, we pray that others might have this same privilege through these gifts and offerings, that your wisdom would be upon them, that, Lord, those in charge of these things would seek after your kingdom, would do what is right and in accordance with your word, that your glory might be seen. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated.
open up our Bibles to Jude, verse 4, today. And I know this is, this is bad, but yes, I did get my phone out here and look something up on the internet during the offering, because uh, I want to have my facts right, okay? It just stems from Donald's and, and my conversation. Uh, so if, if, you, if, if I pull this out and reference it, you'll know that uh, I, could, I couldn't remember it off the top of my head, so I had to look it up, okay? Um, We'll see how the Lord leads. If, if it comes to mind at the proper place, then, then we'll reference it. Now you're thinking, well, what in the world did he look up? Well, you have to wait and see. Jude, verse 4. And let's stand as uh, we prepare to read the Word of God. Heavenly Father, come upon us that we might see your Word. We might know the truth, that it might penetrate all that we are, that through the power of your Holy Spirit... Our eyes would be open and our minds sharpened to how we are to live these things out and seek out the truth. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Now read verses 1 through 4, but the verse today is for 4. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. Now, mark the beginning of verse 4 where it says, Beloved, and verse 3 where it says, Beloved, and verse 4. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long before marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. This is God's inspired word for us today, so please be seated. Now, we won't deal with the one part that says uh, we're long beforehand marked out for this condemnation. There are plenty of passages in the Old Testament that prophesy people like this who will come into the church and who will come in amongst God's chosen people and teach error and do terrible things, but their judgment has been foretold from generations ago. And as I said, there are many, many verses in the Old Testament that talk about this that the prophets point to. Um, Now, I think we are all well aware of the intricacies of boiling a frog, right? Um, now, why you would want to stain your good cookware with the perennial odor or, or taste of boiled frog is, is beyond me. I guess you could go get your neighbor's pot uh, and, and, and borrow that and do it. But you know that to boil a frog, you put the frog in and you change the temperature slowly, okay? So that we understand the frog does not really notice the temperature, its body adjusts to it, and before you know it, it has stayed in the pot and is boiled. Well, let's equate this with with a group of people. If everybody in a specific group of people looks at some changes that are coming down the pipeline and everybody goes, yeah, those are good things and we need to do those, then you can make changes rather quickly and and openly. And everybody is on board and everybody can, can rejoice in those changes. But if there are some changes which are not popular, which not everybody wants or goes against the core 
beliefs of that group of people, then those seeking to make the change probably have to act rather slowly or through subterfuge so that nobody notices them until they're actually there. Uh, if we were going to pick out things in our society, and um, you know, I, my, my mind is somewhat limited on this, so I always revert to Ed Sullivan and Elvis Presley. Okay, and Ed Sullivan would not show Elvis below the waist because Elvis's nickname was Elvis the Pelvis, okay? Now, did they immediately go from not showing Elvis below the waist to uh, hooking up HBO and Showtime and all the things that can come on cable to your home? Well, that took 50 Five, sixty years to happen. It was a slow process. I mean, if somebody in and, and I'm just being hypothetical here, if somebody in, in the entertainment world said, "You know what? We've got to loosen up the morals of this country, and we've got to really reshape this country." And because Ed Sullivan would not show Elvis in that way, next week we're going to run whatever on TV and show nudity and gratuitous violence and all this stuff, and really shape the world. No, that's not the way that they would work. They would work slowly, okay? And it took 50-some years to get the stuff into our house that only used to be able to be found in the sleazy theaters in the rundown sections of the city, okay? So we see how these things change. Now, in 2001, I'm changing gears here, in 2001, the Marine Corps unveiled its pixelated MARPAT, pixelated MARPAT, Marine Pattern Uniform, featuring small square blocks of colors dubbed visual white noise. Because its digitized composition better reflects the textures and irregular edges found in nature, it has since been adopted by all branches of the military in one form or another. And over the last 10 years, the military has spent some $12 million on developing camouflage uniforms. Camouflage uniforms. This does not count the development of things like stealth aircraft or stealth ships or how to camouflage a vehicle, things like that. Now, why spend all this money on camouflage? So you can creep in undetected. They want to be unseen. They want to blend in. And in a perfect world, you would not see them even though they stood right in front of you. Nature has things like this as well. There's a whole category uh, of insects termed phasmida. Uh (laughs) Phasmida. They are insects that look exactly like things within nature. You have Things that look like sticks, things that look like thorns, things that look like bark, and things that look like leaves. Okay? Now, I'm guessing people left their car windows open. So if you're you're feeling this, you can just go right ahead and go close up your window if you need to. Okay? I'm going to continue to talk. All right. So, so they do this so they can creep around unnoticed. So no, no enemy, no predator will be able to tell them from a stick. And Jude warns his audience that certain men have crept into the church unnoticed. And it is by this secret creeping that their real motives are revealed. If they were up front and plain and and had good things to do, then they would come in and, and proclaim those things. But because they have to creep in, 
They're there to do subterfuge. Now, Jude makes it clear that there's a distinction, as I said, between verse 3 and the beloved that he's writing to, and certain men in verse 4, those are the ones who are creeping in. They are adversaries of the godly. Galatians chapter 2, Paul calls them false brothers. 2 Peter 1, they are called false teachers. Now, these men apparently very slyly enter the church by acknowledging the existence of God, but by their personal conduct, they betray this profession of belief. Apostates worm their way into the church. Now, it doesn't do any good for Satan to create apostate and put him on a deserted island. Okay, who will he infect, who will he corrupt on a deserted island? Nobody. This is the place, the church as a whole, where apostates love to come and creep in very sneakily. They crept in unawares, is what Jude says. Their plan is to subtly infiltrate the church. Now, the Greek verb for creep is used only here in the New Testament. It's used no place else, uh, and it's a very rare word, even in... Uh, extra-biblical material that has to do with cunning words and clever pleaders. Cunning words and clever pleaders. Now, I, I, I'm sorry for all my lawyer friends who are here, but this is almost always applied to lawyers and to those who go before judges and plead a case. Okay, um, Somebody who pleads a case in a very cleverly fashion with guile or somebody who allows that kind of thing to seep into the minds of a judge or jury by his trickery. Okay, So we understand that this is a very sly, very subtle action that this is happening by. And this is precisely what the apostates do. They secretly move into a church. They sow lies about Jesus Christ. As Thomas Manton, who's a famous Puritan, said about apostates, he wrote... When the Christian church began first to look forth in the world, there were adverse powers without, ready to crush it. And libertines who, like worms bred within the body, sought to devour the entrails and eat the very bowels of it. Now, when was the last time you used that kind of illustration in your daily conversation, okay? Oh, yeah, you're just like a worm that's in my body trying to eat my entrails. Okay, that's what Thomas... Thomas Manton said about the apostates and how they come into the church. Before you know it, they have consumed the church from within. Now, let's learn, turn to verse 4, and we'll notice two things about what they are teaching. They turn the grace of our Lord into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. They say, and I'm going to paraphrase or, or project onto them some of the things that, that I think they may have said. Now, it doesn't matter how you live as long as you're sincere about it. It doesn't matter what your life is like. As long as your heart is right, you've signed a card, you prayed a prayer, you made a decision, you raised your hand, whatever it is. If your heart is right, it doesn't matter what goes on in your life as long as you're sincere well, Jude says that is a practical denial of Jesus Christ. A practical denial of Jesus Christ. Deny his grace and deny his person. It denies the results of grace in your life. If your life has truly been changed by his grace, you will no longer desire to live in the same way you did before becoming a believer. You are a new creation in Christ. The new takes hold. 
Titus chapter 1, verse 16, Paul says, They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. You see, there's one thing to talk about it and another thing to live it. Okay? We like say you've got to talk the talk, you've got to walk the walk. Well, these people are talking all about grace, but their lives demonstrate none of God's grace. So Jude describes these apostates as being characterized in three ways, three qualities. First, they are, and, and if you look in uh, Jude verse 11, he kind of reiterates these qualities and these characteristics through Old Testament and extra-biblical events. And when we get to verse 11, we'll see those, but let me read that to, them, to you now. Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain, and for pay they have rushed headlong into the air of Balaam and perished in the rebellion of Korah. Okay, so he's taking these three things, and in a couple couple verses he's going to illustrate those in events and we'll see those in just a few weeks so the first item is they are ungodly men they're simply ungodly men this means that the apostates have a total lack of reverence for god a total lack of reverence for god now in our world and you know probably over the last 40 years most of our lifetimes the evangelical church i'm going to paint with a pretty broad brush has moved from a an understanding of the holiness of God and the otherness of God to Jesus is my friend. Okay, Now, we can find those things in Scripture, but to forget the holiness, to forget the otherness of God, the fact that He is without sin and we have no business in His presence unless He makes that way, we do so at our own peril. I mean, Jesus might be my friend and my buddy and my brother, but he is the sinless, spotless Lamb of God who gave his life for us. Let's never, ever forget that. But these ungodly men, they deny these types of things. And it indicates that they are totally, the Greek word indicates that they are totally without worship. Okay, totally without worship. Their understanding within their hearts, only extends so far about God. So if we were to indicate that today, totally without worship, they would be the people who come and fill the pews because they feel an obligation. They're not really here to worship. They have no love of the Lord. When they sing a great song, when they sing Amazing Grace, they don't know God's amazing grace. They just know the words. Their lives do not reflect it in any fashion. They deny God's glory. They may even be the people who are preaching or teaching in this fellowship, as Jude is writing, and they can preach and teach a good story. They can preach about God, but they don't know God. Their lives are marked by ungodliness. Now, what particular sin are we dealing with here in verse 4? It is licentiousness, licentiousness or unrestrained vice. That might be another way to say it. Now, the Greek word here that is used is, means that these people are lost to indecency. Lost to indecency. And, and how do we even describe that? It, it might be that, that they feel no shame. They feel no regret. They feel no remorse about their public actions in fact they have so, they have been so lost the 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 vision and understanding of shame in their life has been so removed that there is no shame that when they act in a public fashion that um, 
the rest of us would go, gosh, you know, are you crazy? It doesn't bother them at all. It doesn't bother them at all. They feel no remorse about these things. Um, They have ceased to care about shame, and they have ceased to care about decency. Now, remember, these men are probably Gnostics. Gnostics that put a high value on the spiritual and no value on the physical. So they say, if I go out and live this way, that is simply the physical part of my life. And because the physical is evil, my body is already given over to evil. So I can participate in all those things without shame or without guilt. Knowing that it's just my body that participates and my heart is right before God. Okay, I am spiritually pure before God even though my body is debauched. That is the rationale. That's how they are thinking about these things. The Gnostics could go and they could slate their desires and gluttonous uh, desires and carnal desires and not feel an ounce of guilt or shame. Because they were saved. This is like the ultimate fire insurance in their view. Okay, I am saved and I'm going to heaven and my heart's right with God. And if I give my body over to the sins of the flesh, well, you know, that's just a better opportunity for God to show his grace to me. Hmm, hmm, that's... That's wrong, okay? And Paul says in Romans chapter 6, What then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law but under grace? Now Paul says, by no means. But if we were going to put it in the vernacular of the day, here's the question. Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? Paul would say, are you kidding me? You ask a stupid question like that, that you think God's grace gives you license to go and live however you want? Haven't you read the rest of Scripture? Haven't you read the rest of the things that the Lord expects out of us? Galatians chapter 5, you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. He says, your freedom is not a chance for you to go and live however you think you want to live. Your freedom is a chance to serve one another and the purposes of Christ. Likewise, Peter condemns what this is all under the category of antinomianism. The Greek word nomi means uh, law and anti would be against the law. So Peter says, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover for evil, but living as servants of God. So in the case of these particular teachers, they're using the gospel's foundation of free grace as justification for licentiousness. And in doing this, Jude says they're effectively denying Christ as their master and, of course, as their Lord because they are not submitting themselves to his authority. They see nothing wrong with living as pagans and using the gospel of grace to justify their actions. Okay? Okay, okay, man. If I go through my list of friends or people that I know, I really don't know anybody who's antinomian. Somebody who is going to church and saying they're saved, but saying, but because I'm saved, now I can go and live however I want to. Now, you might know one or two, but most people don't. So I tried to find some examples within society and within our world that might help us see what Jude is talking about here and apply it in our world. Now, within the evangelical culture, mindset, you might say, there are things like emphasis and things like this on knowing God, things, an emphasis on going to heaven, an emphasis on being saved, 
And sometimes people ex- exclude an emphasis on righteous living. Now, they might not exclude it totally. They just might exclude it as an emphasis. Well, I'm saved, okay? And I know Jesus in my heart. Well, how is it reflected in your life? I can talk about going to heaven. I can talk about God. But I don't ever have to apologize for what I say, okay? I don't ever have to apologize for what I do. Because, you know, the Lord's going to forgive me. And yes, it was wrong. But, you know, if we're believers, so you understand this. I'm, I, I make a mistake and I don't have to come and, and seek your forgiveness. Or I don't have to apologize for stupid things I might post on Facebook about you or somebody else. Okay? Or I never have to apologize to my spouse. Uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's very wrong. I have freedom to shout about things and, and to talk about things that I have no clue about. I can be ignorant of the Bible or of Christian, Christian theology, even though I am commanded to consume God's Word. I can be ignorant or I can live outside of the things of Christ because I'm a believer, whether that be in uh, by, uh, the, the, the way that the Lord structures a relationship between a man and a woman, whether that's a, a relationship outside of marriage. I don't, you know, God forgives me for these things, so I can go ahead and live them, and besides, who knows but me and the Lord? These things are wrong. These things are obviously wrong. I can be lazy concerning the philosophical or, or cultural movements that impact me as a believer or can attempt to constrain me as a believer or constrain Christianity. I don't have to know about those things. I don't have to be aware of them in our society. Okay, All I have to do is live in my own little bubble of me and God. Or I can be just as narcissistic and shallow and accommodating and situational as the surrounding culture. Okay, I can look just like them, but I'm a Christian, so God forgives me. See, this is how I kind of see the potential for antinomianism in our world today. So in order to justify this type of understanding or this type of living, somebody who wants to live this way has to work very hard and redefine some of the terms that we use. In fact, they have to redefine many of the terms we use. They have to redefine those things that, that would cause them to be concerned about their life. They have to redefine, even, even to go so far as to redefine the definition of sin or anything that accuses them or any of the demands that Christ makes upon their life. Well, those aren't really demands. Those are demands for the super spiritual. We expect Randy to live that way, but I don't have to live that way. Hmm, that's not quite right. But if you redefine the terms to fit your world and our world today, then you can justify a variety of lifestyles and a variety of sinful actions. Okay, Even though those definitions have stood for generations and generations, we come and we look at it and say, yeah, but now we can redefine it in some other way. It's just not the way it works. Modern-day antinomianism tries to, in a sense, outrun faith by redefining or dumbing down the things of Christ or outright ignoring the things of Christ. We see this in, in... Two institutions or, or vehicles, let's say. Modern, modern day antinomianism thrives when believers lose our courage. 
when believers lose our courage. Courage about what the word of God says. Courage about the promises of Christ. Courage about the forgiveness that Christ brings and how to proclaim that. And courage about the demands that Christ lays upon our hearts. Grace is given to us not just to save us, but so that our lives will be different, that our lives will be a testimony to the things of Christ each and every day. And secondly, modern day antinomianism thrives when institutions lose their courage. When institutions lose their courage. Let's turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6. Paul warns us about this in two passages, and we'll look at at both briefly, 1 Timothy and then 2 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 3. You see, Paul is warning about these things coming. Jude is warning that these things are here. We know that they're here because we are living within the church, and these things will be here until the return of Christ. Verse 3, if anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing. But he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words, out of which arise envy and strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain, okay? That godliness and the grace that the Lord gives us is just license for me to go out and live however I want. Now flip over a page to 2 Timothy chapter 1. Paul says, Timothy, these words are going to come to you in a proper fashion. You have to cling to these words. Verse 13 of 2 Timothy chapter 1. Retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. This is the doctrine. This is the word of God. And Paul says it is a treasure, Timothy. You have to care for it. You have to nurture it. You have to teach what is true and what is right. Now, the great problem that we face is that institutions don't always cling to that now dan is in the midst of theological education okay he takes online classes at reformed theological seminary we don't have to worry about rts it is solid but there are plenty of other places that are not when i went through pittsburgh theological seminary no i had a, I had a professor accuse me and and i was hanging out with a bunch of methodist guys who were good and solid theologically and they said you people evangelize just to strengthen your own faith and your own position to give you the impression that you're right this was a theology professor that accused us of this and I turned to my Methodist buddies and I said are you going to respond to that and and they were so dry they said doesn't even worth a response okay doesn't even justify us responding it is so far out of the ordinary okay 
Well, theological institutions, whatever happens there, eventually ends up here in the pews. Okay? Dan has a class on church history. You know what you get in a sermon? You get a little church history. Okay? You get some cool stuff about places and people. Okay? Now, when he gets into your systematic classes, you'll get stuff you don't understand. Okay? Because <laughs> it's systematic theology. All right. An unfaithful seminary will lose a torrent of sickness in the church. It's just the way it is. And over the years, many once biblically solid places have gone into liberalism, Unitarianism, uh, secularism. Okay, now let me give you two examples of this creep that has happened through institutions. One of the great institutions of our country, Harvard, was founded by ministers who realized the need for training clergy in the new commonwealth. Okay? It, re- it was named for John Harvard, who was its first benefactor. It received its corporate charter in 1650, became a university in 1780, and this is a description of the college from 1643. After God had carried us safe to New England, and we reared convenient places for God's worship, dreading to leave an illiterate ministry to the churches when our present ministers shall lie in the dust, it pleased God to stir up the heart of one Mr. Harvard, a godly gentleman and a lover of learning, to give one half of his estate towards the erecting of a college and all of his library. Harvard was founded because the ministers and the leaders in the Puritan world who were in New England said, when we die off, there's going to be no ministers to come and teach the people. So we better start a school in which they can be trained in the gospel. And I believe the majority of the first 400 graduates of Harvard were ministers. But by 1805, Unitarian doctrine was the major view of the faculty. And by 1850, Harvard was known as the Unitarian Vatican. Okay, now, how did this happen? They left the Puritan, the Reformed theology they were founded on. They went to what was known as common sense theology. And from common sense theology, they went to Unitarianism and Universalism, where it is no longer scripture but everybody's going to heaven so let's just come to grips with that that would be universalism the original statement of faith of fuller theological seminary which was adopted by the faculty and board in 1949 read the books which form the canon of the old and new testaments as originally given are plenarily inspired and free from all error in the whole and in part free from all error in the whole and in part Today we would call that inspired and inerrant. In 1972, that statement was altered, and the words free from all error in whole and in part were removed from their doctrinal statement. Now that statement has been reworked several times over the years. But you see what falls first when we move into secularism or into universalism or into liberalism. It is a stand upon the doctrine, the fundamental doctrine of God's word. Apostates turn the grace of God into gross immorality. That's what Jude is saying. And false teachers today are just a flip of the channel away on the television, a switch on the radio, a search on your iPod or iTunes. We have to be discerning because truth matters. What you don't know can hurt you. What you think falsely can hurt you. Theology matters. False teaching destroys souls. It destroys lives. That's what Jude is saying here. And they creep 
in unnoticed. So here's Jude speaking to a group of Christians who lived in a pluralistic and relativistic society that followed after many gods and many truths and many fads, and he is saying contend for the faith. Well, here we are in the 21st century in a pluralistic society, relativistic society that follows fads, follows many gods, and Jude is saying contend for the faith. You in Huntsville contend for the faith because this is what is right. Be savvy enough about the truth that you can tell a false teacher from a biblical teacher. In the evangelical world, we seem so often engrossed in in our opportunity to engage the culture and to be able to speak in a Christian fashion about uh, what movies we see and what's good and what's bad. It's important, but being able to discuss what movies are good and what movies are bad is not essential. It is the doctrine of our Lord that is essential. You cannot get to heaven without knowing Jesus Christ. You don't have to know about the movies. You have to know Jesus Christ. So let's pray. Lord, you you place before us this, this challenge. Know the things of God. Watch out for those who creep in. Watch out for the fact and the dangers of the church slowly looking more and more like the world around us. Taking your gospel and corrupting it, even to the place where we use your grace to justify sinful actions or to justify laziness or to justify intolerance, whatever it may be. Your gospel and your grace justifies us, cleanses us from our sin. And now the call is to live that out in faithfulness and it will not always be easy. We have to know what we believe. You do not call us to an ignorant faith. You call us to a reasoned and rationed faith, an understanding of what you have given us so that we might, with gentle hearts and with uncompromising hearts, share that in all that we do. Lord, remind us of these things. Bring these things to mind when those opportunities are right before us to live out and to share the gospel, even though it will be hard. When we are faced ourselves with temptation, that we would turn and walk away from it. Because we can't justify, well, I can do this and seek forgiveness. No, I know that it's wrong. I know that I need to move away from it now. Or perhaps it's in things that we've already done. And we've left them unfinished. We've not sought forgiveness. We've not given forgiveness because we have just assumed, where they're believers, they understand these things. Move in our hearts, Lord, that we would act in ways that reflect your grace and love in our lives, that we would never be ashamed to do so. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Lord, might we never forget your grace and mercy to us, and even the agony of Christ that has paid this price for our sin. Might we reflect this in how we live. Might we reflect this in the words that we say, in the forgiveness that we extend to one another, and also, Lord, in the watchfulness that we exercise over the teaching of your word, that we might fill our hearts and our minds with the truth, and that it would flow from all that we say and do. Lord, send us out, that we might be the salt and the light that you call us to, in Christ's name, amen.